G'day, this is Glenn from Sydney, Australia. This program is made possible by supporters just like me who have been contributing to the big fundraiser running all of June. Get details on how to support the entire progressive media community by visiting the fundraiser page at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, Q from the CBC, The Young Turks, On the Media and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. And just a quick thought, that from down here, that Fourth Amendment of yours is looking a bit like a fig leaf that's fraying at the edges. You might want to look into getting that fixed. What is Edward Snowden's crime? That was basically the debate held on the June 1st episode of NBC's Meet the Press. Guest Newt Gingrich said Snowden was a traitor who ended up aiding and abetting the enemy. On the other side of the debate was hawkish former Democratic representative Jane Harman, who said labeling the NSA whistleblower a traitor before he's convicted was unfair, but then offered a view not far removed from Gingrich's, saying that Snowden wasn't a whistleblower and had leaked our technology playbook, and that really compromises us. Host David Gregory then played tape of Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel saying Snowden had indisputably damaged the security of the United States. Gingrich echoed Hagel saying Snowden threatens the very fabric of our national security. Harmon offered a variation arguing that Snowden should cut a deal and serve prison time. The Meet the Press debate came on the heels of a nightly news report in which Brian Williams seemed defensive about having landed an exclusive interview with Snowden earlier. Responding to criticism of that interview, Williams described Snowden like this. Many regard him as a treasonist and traitor who should pay dearly for what he's done, and many fiercely believe he has done grave damage to the United States. Some of our viewers have let us know they are outraged that we have interviewed him at all. That segment included a lengthy denunciation of Snowden from Secretary of State John Kerry, followed by a report from correspondent Chuck Todd, who confirmed that, yes, indeed, government officials really, really don't like Snowden. It's not political theater, Todd explained. It's real rage. NBC has been labeling its Snowden coverage traitor or patriot. For reports like these, traitor or criminal might be more appropriate. So here's how Brian Williams starts off, it, the, how he introduces the, uh, the interview with Edward Snowden. Here's what he has. Let's begin with a reminder of what this 30-year-old has done and why. But first of all, why, that bothers me. I don't understand why they always mention his age. I, even, well, I think the implication is that, uh, is that what he did is a result of immaturity. Yes, that's, that is. So, and then Brian Williams repeats that. So, Frank, people have said about the maturity thing, that uh, Snowden was able to do this because he didn't have a family, he didn't have kids, he doesn't have a mortgage. So really, he's exactly like a television writer. <laughs> <laughs> My point is, why aren't television writers doing something good for their country? Yeah. 
I agree with you. So here's let's hear how Brian Williams introduces the piece again. Begin with a reminder of what this 30-year-old has done and why he's living in exile overseas. So again, why why you got to mention is that so that that is why they mentioned the name because it kind of again it can diminishes him. He's not a grown up. What this 30-year-old? I mean, 30. I think. Steven Spielberg was 25 when he did Jaws. I think Orson Welles was uh, was the same age when he did. The, I mean, what does that have to do with how old? Jesus Christ was 32, for Christ's sake. I mean, right. how, how old do you need to be? And he changed the world. How old do you need to be to expose criminals inside your government? I say 18. I say that's old enough. Anyway, so here, Brett. I, I just want to remind you what this 32-year-old prophet has done. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go, Brian. Bring us home. Let's begin with a reminder of what this 30-year-old has done and why he's living in exile overseas, wanted for espionage in this country. The classified documents he stole, downloaded from the NSA and handed over to journalists, blew the lid off data mining programs that had been launched in the wake of and in the name of 9-11. Now, you notice how Brian Williams, is he's framing everything. And what he said there was that he st stole documents. He So he, he applies the correct criminality charge to Edward Snowden, but... Very interestingly, he lee or suspiciously, he leaves any criminal wording off of what the government did. So he says that he illegally stole, he stole this stuff and it blew the lid off of data mining. He didn't say it blew the lid off illegal, unconstitutional, systematic law breaking inside of our government. He doesn't say that. He says, well, I'll tell you, but here's what he says. The classified documents he stole, downloaded from the NSA and handed over to journalists, blew the lid off data mining programs that had been launched in the wake of and in the name of 9-11. So there you go. Just, they're just data mining programs. They're not illegal. They're not unconstitutional. They don't undermine our, they don't undermine our freedom and liberty. They're not an invasion of our privacy. They don't break the Fourth Amendment. They're not, nothing. He doesn't say any of that. He just says there's their data mining. He blew the the roof off, the lid off, the data mine. Data. It sounds nice, almost data mining. He doesn't want to say anything that'll make it awkward when he runs into any of these people at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. Yeah, when him and James Clapper are uh, playing, the, are doing the hokey pokey at, at a wedding yeah. out at Martha's Vineyard. He doesn't want it to be uncomfortable with the guy who lied to Congress. So here he goes on to frame this even more. They have names like Prism and Boundless Informant and X-Keyscore, some of them designed to vacuum up phone and Internet data from companies like Verizon and Google and Apple and Yahoo. And some of them, if directed, could zero in on any one of us. And and uh, again, he's the words that he is leaving out is the illegal, criminal, unconstitutional undermining he's leaving all these words out not saying any of those words when he well, these are the same same uh, journalists that never say the word torture that always say enhanced interrogation they say you're correct they say enhanced they, whatever the government tells them to say we'll say hey right. by the way if someone else did waterboarding we'd call it torture but since we're doing it we call whatever the government says we'll call it okay so here's a little bit more framing from brian uh i almost called him brian regan here we go. It's Brian Williams. Well, he is comedic. He is funny like Brian Regan. Here we are. 
Snowden came to this interview clearly armed with talking points, ready to tell his story. Uh, uh, Frankie, did you catch that? Snowden came to this interview clearly armed with talking points, ready to tell his story. You mean clearly armed with stuff that everybody you've ever interviewed in your life has brought to an interview, right, meaning right. ideas of what they're going to talk about. Every day you interview a politician, have you ever once said that about Mitch McConnell or anyone else you've had Cruz or Joe Scarborough or anybody you've ever interviewed on your show? Have you ever introduced them like, well, well, obviously Rahm Emanuel came loaded with his talking points. Right, right. Yeah, it's everyone he's ever interviewed. Uh, like every, how about that? How, how about you? You can say that, but you have to. In, you have to put in front of that, Brian. Uh, like every person else I've ever interviewed on this program, Edward Snowden was ready for me. How about that? He had some yeah. talking points. Oh, I, this just drives me crazy. Again, the framing of somehow he he what he did was illegal, but what the government was doing was just massive. And that, uh, and that he somehow, he's also nefarious. He's ready. This guy's savvy, man. Like, this guy isn't an innocent kid. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's ready for it. That's ex this is exactly what Brian Williams is doing here. Okay, so. Jimmy, I, I didn't, I didn't realize that revelations that the government has an unconstitutional surveillance program. I didn't realize that's just a talking point. That is, that is just a talking point. Um, so they asked Edward Snowden, if he thinks he's a traitor or a patriot. And uh, he said, yes, he thought he was a patriot, because according to him, what a patriot does, hold on. So here's what Edward Snowden, I don't have the clip, but I'll read it to you what he said. He said, I think a patriot is a word that's thrown around so much that it can be devalued nowadays. Being a patriot doesn't mean prioritizing service to government above all else. Being a patriot means knowing when to protect your country. Knowing when to protect your constitution, knowing when to protect your countrymen from the violations of and encroachments of adversaries, and those adversaries don't have to be foreign countries. So, sounds, he, sounds like a reasonable talking point to me. Sounds like he was. So, can you? Who could disagree with that? That's exactly what a patriot is. A patriot swears allegiance to the Constitution and to protect the Constitution from all enemies, foreign and domestic. So domestic, meaning people who are trampling on the Constitution while employed by the government. That doesn't mean that they are the government. That means that they're employed by the government, right? So I agree. I could not agree more. A patriot does not prioritize service to the government above all else. Being a patriot means knowing when to protect your country, when to protect your constitution, and when to protect your countrymen. That is such a great, great uh, uh, definition of what a patriot is. I just... I. I like this guy. I like Edward Snowden. I like everything he did. I like that he risked... So here's... So he gave himself that description... John Kerry went on CBS this morning. Charlie Rose is on that show, by the way, because apparently he's trying to win the biggest bags under my eyes contest that I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, Charlie, take a break. Take a nap. You don't have to work all the time. And um, so here's what so they had on uh, John Kerry on the CBS. And here's what John Kerry had to say about Edward Snowden calling himself a patriot. 
The bottom line is, this is a man who has betrayed his country, who is sitting in Russia, an authoritarian country, uh, where he has taken refuge. Uh, you know, he should man up and come back to the United States if he has a complaint about what's the matter with American uh, surveillance. Come back here and stand uh, in our system of justice uh, and, and, and make his case. But so why do you think Edward, jo Edward Snowden would not come back to America and make his case in our side? I don't know. You mean he wants to, uh, I don't know, maybe because you tortured Bradley Manning for a year before yeah. you ever took him to trial? Maybe you torture Jose Padilla? You torture Bradley Manning, who's now Chelsea Manning? You torture, this is how you treat people who you consider terrorists, so you were going to torture him. And maybe that's why, because he exposed you guys for being criminals. And now what you want him to do is then throw himself on the mercy of the criminals he's exposing inside of the criminal organization that he's exposing for being a criminal organization. Guys who have already admitted to using torture on their own prisoners. And you want him to man up. Well, I say to you, John Kerry, how about you man up? And why don't you prosecute four or five war criminals that I know of right now living in the United States who have been giving commencement speeches all over the goddamn country. You know, like Condoleezza Rice and Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney and George Bush. You know, the people who go on Sunday afternoon talk shows in America and brag about ordering war crimes. Why don't you man up and prosecute one of those war criminals who are self-admitted, who live right here freely inside the United States. Why don't you man up and do that? But no, you want this guy who did a service to our democracy, you want him to man up and come back here to get tortured and be prosecuted unfairly. Because he wouldn't be able, he wouldn't be able to give a defense because they would say everything he wanted to use as his defense is classified. So he wouldn't right. be able to have a defense, which is another reason why he's not coming back here, which is another reason why John Kerry is, is full of it. And I can't believe, I burned my t-shirt, by the way. I used to love wearing my John Kerry 2004 t-shirt. And, uh, I, I don't even wear it to bed anymore. I burned it. Yes, that my spring It's a beautiful day And I'm starting to feel a lot better So wake up, wake up It's t-shirt weather It's t-shirt weather Hello, Glenn. Good morning. You've been listening in? I have. <laughs> <laughs> what, what is your first I've got some questions for you, but what's your first reaction to what you've been listening in to? Well, as you indicated, General Hayden was the chief of both the NSA and the CIA during the most radical abuses of the war on terror and is very adept at presenting a public image of these programs that is wildly at odds with the actual reality that takes place in the dark, and unfortunately for General Hayden, but fortunately for the rest of the world, we now have for the first time the actual evidence of what it is that this surveillance system is, and it's not this reasonable, targeted, discriminating system that targets terrorists. It is instead a system of suspicionless surveillance that puts entire populations, hundreds of millions, if not billions of people who have done nothing wrong under a microscope and stores and monitors and analyzes their communications, and not a single word that he said, even if you want to assume it's all true, remotely justifies that. You've said that 
a surveillance state is menacing to basic political liberties. And before we get into that, in your view, what is the difference between state surveillance, which is the topic of this debate, and a surveillance state? State surveillance can be perfectly legitimate. Everybody, including me and including Edward Snowden and everybody else who's been critical of the NSA, readily acknowledges everybody wants governments to be listening in on the conversations to the extent they can of Osama bin Laden and his his, his associates. That is targeted, legitimate surveillance. A surveillance state, by contrast, is a society which decrees that there is no such thing as individual privacy, that all communications that take place by and between other human beings are the business of the state, that the state both can and should invade those communications at will. That is a society in which we as Americans live, as Canadians live, and now the rest of the world as well. And when does one become the other? When it ceases to be targeted, discriminating surveillance directed at people who are actually doing something wrong, it becomes a mass, indiscriminate system that targets everybody. You're a longtime privacy proponent. Uh, you've built a reputation as a critic of large-scale state surveillance, particularly after your work reporting uh, on the Snowden leaks. In your view, here's the broad question, how does state surveillance impact our individual freedoms? People often like to be dismissive of privacy. They say things like, well, if you've done nothing wrong, you should have nothing to hide. And yet all of us, including the people who say that, fully understand instinctively how central privacy is to human freedom. We all put passwords on our email accounts and our social media accounts. We put locks on our bedroom and our bathroom doors. We do all sorts of things when we think nobody is watching, from trivial acts like singing songs or dancing to more substantive acts like discussing things with lawyers and psychologists that we would never want other people to know. There is an entire world of behavior as human beings that we want to keep completely private that has nothing to do with, quote, doing something wrong. It is only when we can act without prying eyes, casting judgment upon us, can we engage in human exploration or dissent or creativity or what it means to be a free individual. When you take that away, when you subject all forms of human communication and action to the knowing eyes of the state, whether they're watching or not, the mere possibility that they can be, we lose enormous amounts of what it means to be a free individual because we start engaging in conduct that we think other people want us to engage in as opposed to the conduct that we ourselves choose to. Talk to me specifically about the Internet. In past interviews, you talked about how the Internet was an important space for you to develop your own identity and politics. How is that at risk here? One of the crucial liberating aspects of the Internet that made it so unique when it first emerged was the ability to explore Anonymously, You could go and read things that you wouldn't want other people knowing you're reading. You could go and say things or talk to other people that you wouldn't want anyone else knowing that you're doing. You could explore all sorts of parts of the world that you might be inhibited or otherwise embarrassed to think about and interact with. The only way that works, let alone the more substantive value of being able to organize political dissent and political activism and opposition to those in power, the only way all of that works is if you can do it with pure freedom and with Without people knowing what it is you're doing. Once you turn the internet, you degrade the internet from this free uh, wilderness of ways to explore and to engage in creativity into a system of mass coercive surveillance unlike anything the human um, humanity has ever known before, you degrade the internet.
that from an instrument of great freedom and creativity into one of great social control. But and that's we what the already NSA is doing. We don't have pure freedom. We don't have that autonomy. I mean, we we've talked about it uh, dozens of times on this show. You know, you use your credit card at a store, and your information is <laughs> goes goes everywhere. Uh, we already give away loads of information online, knowingly, unknowingly. Why not in the name of security as well? What's the difference there for you? There is a massive difference between using your credit card to purchase a shirt or a pair of shoes at a mall and having one single credit card company or bank know about that one discrete transaction and then going and making a phone call where one telephone company knows about the call that you made and having these discrete and isolated instances of people and companies knowing what you've done and having, on the other hand, one centralized repository where every single thing that you do in your life electronically is stored and monitored, which is what a surveillance state is. There are definitely threats and to privacy that come from corporate gathering of data. But there is a radically different kind of threat, a worse threat when it's the state that gathers everything. It is the state that can put you in prison, that can deprive you of your property, and the United States even deprive you of your life um, in a way that corporations can't do, which is what makes surveillance in the hands of the state so much more dangerous. To pick up on what Michael Hayden was saying or insinuating, as much as we want our emails to be private. We also want to remain safe. And and some would say we'd be naive not to point out that national and international threats exist. There was 9-11, the Boston bombing. Last year in Canada, two men were arrested in connection with a planned attack on a via rail train in Toronto. Can there exist a balance between protection and freedom? And if so, what does that look like for, look, like, look like for you? Sure. I mean, first of all, very easily, you can have the state target those people who belong to radical groups who are seemingly plotting to engage in terrorist attacks without subjecting the communications of every single single human being in the society and on the planet to this form of massive state surveillance. But the more important point How do you do is, that? The state surveillance becomes more targeted? Is that the yeah, idea? Yeah, it becomes more targeted. You listen in to members who have al-Qaeda or people who are associating with members of terrorist organizations using traditional means of intelligence and law enforcement rather than having this ubiquitous system of suspicionless surveillance, which is what we now have. But the other important thing to realize here is terrorism is a word that packs an incredibly potent emotional punch. I was in 9-11 uh, in Manhattan on 9-11. To this day, when someone mentions 9-11, I remember all of those emotions. But as citizens, it's our responsibility to rationally assess these risks and not to let ourselves be fear-mongered, which is what people like General Hayden like to do. The reality is, is that terrorism is the thing the U.S. government uses to justify everything it has done, from torture to Guantanamo to rendition to invading Iraq. It's a, it's a tactic. It's a slogan and not a rational argument. This surveillance program has very little to do with actual terrorism. It's directed at oil companies like Petrobras in Brazil or banking systems or entire populations that have nothing to do with national security threats. Got one minute left with you here. Uh, let me ask you a big, a big question. Actually, do I have one? Yeah, I have one minute left. Uh, we often hear about and we talk about the end of privacy. Are you hopeful that we could actually reverse the idea that we no longer have privacy? Absolutely, and I think that's one of the reasons why the world owes such a debt of gratitude to Edward Snowden. His disclosures, done so heroically and self-sacrificingly, have enabled us to know the threat that is now posed to our privacy in a way that we didn't know before, which in turn lets us take all sorts of steps to re-establish privacy, whether it's using encryption technology, making it more user-friendly, demanding that our governments protect our privacy rather than invade it. There's a major debate, as you indicated, 
dedicated and all sorts of reform movements designed to do just that. And we now have the tools as a result of these disclosures to do that. And there's a camera. Yet another great story coming out from Glenn Greenwald, um, and uh, it's this time more of the Stone Revelations, uh, but this is different than something we've seen before. This involves the GCHQ, which is of course Britain's intelligence unit, and their uh, previously secret part of that unit called the Joint Threat Research Intelligence Group, and how they do propaganda online. Damn. They've got the memos internally from how they do it, and of course, the five eyes all participate in this intelligence gathering operations together. So if Britain does it, as they're doing it here, will they share the information and uh, uh, with the U.S. and the other five eyes? Yes. If you don't know the five eyes, that's U.S., Britain, New Zealand, Australia, and Canada. It's what they call themselves. It's their intelligence groups working together. Hey, what can you do in Britain? What can you do in Australia and America? How can we violate each other's laws without having to do it ourselves and get our hands dirty? In this case, they do it with propaganda. So uh, the document that they received from the Joint Threat Research Intelligence Group is, quote, the art of deception, training for online covert operations. Oh, boy, this ought to be good. All right, and the first thing that you find out is that it is, of course, not necessarily directed towards terrorists. Of course! Here's one of the slides. It says, Cyber Offensive Session. And they know it. Look at this. Pushing the boundaries and action against hacktivism. And it, it refers to a guy from Serious Crime Effects, etc. Right? So, terrorism... That's old news. Hacktivism. Hacktivism. Who are the hacktivists? Well, anyone who's opposed to these intelligence groups online, I guess, would make you a hacktivist, right? As they explain here in The Intercept. Critically, the targets, quote, were uh, this for this deceit and reputation destruction extend far beyond the customary roster of normal spycraft, hostile nations and their leaders, military agencies, and intelligence services. In fact... Discussion of many of these techniques occurs in the context of using them in lieu of traditional law enforcement against people suspected, but not charged or convicted of ordinary crimes, or more broadly still, quote, hacktivism, meaning those who use online protest activity for political ends. Now, those are the people that are supposed to be protected the most in a democracy, people protesting against their government or different government agencies and what they're up to. Turns out those government agencies don't see it that way. They call you a hacktivist. Now look, understand that if you were going to do character assassination online, in order to get a certain mark or a target, and it's in a hostile country, and you want to flip them somehow, I know the CIA has been doing that a long time, and they do it offline, they might even do it online, and you might disagree with that tactic, but it's a little bit more understandable, or against a legitimate... A target that's a terrorist who's looking to do damage to the country. But that is not who we're using it 
against, certainly not exclusively. As you can see here, we're using it at, against citizens who disagree with these government agencies. And so what are they doing to them? Get a load of these slides. Here's one. It says, Disruption, Operational Playbook. Oh, boy. Here, here are the topics that they're going to cover. Infiltration Operation, Ruse Operation, Set Peace Operation, False Flag Operation, False Rescue Operation, Disruption Operation, and Sting Operation. And every one of these is explained, and they're not pretty. A false flag operation is where they pretend to be someone else, uh, and there's a whole slew of dirty tricks. Let me just give you some of them from some of the slides. Uh, here's how to discredit a target. Set up a honey trap, and that's really interesting. Uh, let's pause there for a second as I explain that one. Uh, I had a former CIA operative that I interviewed, Lindsay Moran, on the show. You can watch it on TYT interviews. She explained what a honey trap was. That was the first time I'd ever heard it. It's when you seduce a target. In that case, it was legitimate CIA targets abroad that we were looking to flip, right? And you use, in that, if it's a, a guy who's your target, you use an attractive woman, and you get them to believe that they're going to have sex. Now, do they actually have sex? Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they do, right? And now they're saying, let's use this online against government uh, opponents, right? So let's set up a honey trap for them and see if they bite. That's our governments, in this case Britain, but again, the NSA works with all these guys, to say, yeah, 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 let's seduce them. I don't know if they actually have the sex or don't have the sex, or they seduce them into doing something sexual online. And isn't it funny that whenever someone is causing trouble for the government, like, for example, Julian Assange, what's the charges? Oh, he had sex in the wrong ways. He didn't use a condom, this, that, and the other thing. Ellie Spitzer, when... Uh, was challenging the banks who basically run the government here in the United States. What happened? Oh, look at that. There, we found funds for a prostitute. Sex, 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 huh? First thing in the slide for discredit a target. Set up a honey trap. It's not us saying it. It's the British government who wrote that down. Second one. Change their photos on social networking sites. That seems particularly weak, if you ask me. <laughs> I think they're going to find out. Anyway, uh, write a blog purporting to be one of their victims. Oh, come on. Isn't that great? So you say, oh, my God, the victims, the victims. It turns out some of the victims are fake. It was written by guys at GCHQ. And the last one there was email, text their colleagues, neighbors, friends, etc. So send emails to their family, their parents, their whoever else, their wives with false information to discredit them. Aren't you so proud of your government? <laughs> I'm, here, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. I don't think so. <laughs> All right, uh, discredit a company, okay? How do they do that? Leak confidential information to companies, the press, via blogs, okay? So get their confidential information and then leak it. Wait, I thought you guys were opposed to leaks. Uh, right now, by the way, as we speak, they're crying a river over this leak. When they leak it, they love it. When it's leaked about them, they hate it. Post negative information on appropriate forums, stop deals, and ruin business relationships. By the way, what do they do to the head of Quest? You remember? In America, he was the one guy uh, among the phone companies that didn't play ball and give over his um, clients' private information to the government in an illegal fashion. For that brave act of patriotism, eventually he said, Oh, sorry, we had to pull all of your government contracts. And look at that. It turns out now Quest is in trouble, and you sold some stock at some point. Up, oh, insider trading. They put him in jail. And people have like, crazy conspiracy theories. They have a manual for how to do it. If, uh, they explain another slide, effects definition. 
using uh, online techniques to make something happen in the real or cyber world. Two broad categories, information ops, influencer disruption, technical disruption, known in GCHQ as online covert action, the four Ds, deny, disrupt, degrade, deceive. Those are the four Ds that they keep going back to. Now, uh, again, the intercept explains. Under the title Online Covert Action, the documents detail a variety of means to engage in influence and info ops, as well as disruption and computer net attack, while dissecting how human beings can be manipulated using leaders, trust, obedience, and compliance. In other words, they have a manual on how to get you to bow your head. And one of the keys to that is to get trusted leaders in the media to say, no, no, this is right, the government is right, now everybody, comply! And in fact, they have a different slide, and there's so many different things in here to learn, it's amazing. Let me show you this. Uh, in this slide, you'll see highlighted conspiracy stories. Uh, you know, uh, plant some of those uh, in the... Uh, online, etc. Use uh, on the right hand side, you see hindsight bias, confirmation bias, anchoring and priming. Priming targets to believe a certain thing and then confirm their bias already, etc. They have all these psychological tactics to get you to believe things that aren't true. But my favorite is at the bottom there propaganda, branding, marketing, and then even advertising. Okay? They know they're doing propaganda. They have a manual that says do propaganda in the media. And one of the things they do is they get thought leaders in the media to totally agree with the government and to exclude the hacktivists that are protesting online uh, government actions and say, ah, you, that guy's illegitimate. That guy's terrible. That, you know what that guy did with sex? Look at that. Look at what he did over here. Oh, and that one, I don't know if that's true or untrue, but who cares? It's, it's online somewhere. It was in a forum. I saw it. It was emailed to his colleagues and his family and friends. Here's another chart where they show all the different things that you could do to take advantage of people's psychology. They've got anthropology. They've studied all of this. Uh, I love the one on the right. Use their belief in religion to trick them into A, targeting someone, and B, getting everyone else to believe that that target deserves the derision, etc., and the propaganda that they received. And on the left... Use compliance, obedience, and social networks. I mean, this is propaganda 101 manual. We've literally got it now, and we know that GCHQ is using it. They have a whole different slide here. Show this one on the. If you notice the title, I can't break down all of their tactics here, but the title is "Gambits for Deception." Well, isn't that lovely? And finally, I'm going to show you one more slide here because I think it's also very instructive. It says, identifying and exploiting fracture points. So if you've got a, a group that's working well together and they have things that push the group together, well, you've got to find ways to break it apart. So that it identifies things that pull a group apart. Uh, personal power, pre-existing cleavage, uh, and competition among ideological differences, etc. So in other words... Get them to be bitter and jealous against one another. Set them against one another. So if they dare ever unite against us, and our propaganda online didn't work, and our character assassinations didn't work, well then, go ahead and try to rip them apart by saying, oh, you see the, the differences that you guys have? Don't fight us. Fight yourselves. Fight each other. Now we know exactly what the government's up to. So when you see this online... Know that that's exactly where it comes from. It's scary stuff, man, that this is what our government is uh, now doing. The British government 
and all the five eyes that cooperate with them. Big Brother is here, and he's got some unbelievable propaganda headed in your direction. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The Central Intelligence Agency joined Twitter last Friday. The CIA's first tweet was, We can neither confirm nor deny that this is our first tweet. <laughs> a little self-deprecating humor from those zany folks who brought us waterboarding, assassinations, and countless overthrown governments. <laughs> the kooks. Naturally, what followed was joking about, never mind following the CIA, is the CIA following you? To which the agency responded with, Thank you for the Twitter welcome. We look forward to sharing great hashtag unclassified content with you. Or not. Back in April, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence's website quietly posted Intelligence Community Directive 119. It was a casually posted PDF file, but its implications for journalists covering intelligence activities could be devastating. Stephen Aftergood, a government secrecy watchdog at the Federation of American Scientists, says Intelligence Community Directive 119 essentially eradicates routine contact between intelligence officials and the press. It basically says that unless you're a senior official of an intelligence agency, you are not supposed to engage in any kind of routine contact with a member of the media. You're not even supposed to discuss unclassified information. You're not supposed to say anything at all of substance without prior approval from your agency. Yeah, it sets up a protocol which negates the very common practice of a reporter on a beat checking in with his or her sources routinely to run a story down or just to keep channels of communication open. Exactly. I mean, I think it's correct to say that most national security reporters do not receive their stories all neatly tied up with a bow. Many very important stories begin with a hint or a rumor or a word of mouth that then gets chased down through conversation after conversation and finally develops into a coherent story. This directive will just throw a wrench into that whole process. It will become far more difficult to develop new sources or to really do reporting. Now, I'm guessing that people listening to this conversation or some of them are saying to themselves, well, wait a second, we're talking about spies, and this stuff is supposed to be secret. It makes perfect sense that they shouldn't be blabbing to reporters routinely or otherwise. 
You know, there has always been a prohibition against unauthorized disclosures of classified information. What makes this directive so disturbing is that it erases that distinction. It says you cannot talk about anything that is intelligence-related. Some of the most important reporting in the lead-up to the Iraq War disclosed that there were dissenting views within the intelligence community about the state of Iraq's nuclear weapons program. Were those aluminum tubes usable in a nuclear weapons program or not? Those kind of dissenting views will become much more difficult to locate and report on under this kind of blanket prohibition that the intelligence community has adopted. Do you know what triggered this move by the Obama administration? Is it related to the Snowden leaks? The Office of the Director of National Intelligence says that it predates Snowden, that it actually responds in part to an initiative in the Senate Intelligence Committee in 2012, but the prohibition even on unclassified information is spectacularly heavy-handed, I think it's ultimately going to backfire against the intelligence community itself. Backfire how? Well, you know, whether they realize it or not, I think the intelligence agencies benefit by being the object of independent reporting. You know, in the short term, they may suffer some embarrassment, but over time, they gather a degree of public confidence and a kind of credibility People also get a comfort level that if there's something really going wrong, reporters are going to turn it up. This directive undermines that confidence. It says you're not going to know about it unless the intelligence community has approved it for public release because alternate channels of information have been shut down. When we're talking about the intelligence community, there's a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, it is by definition operating behind a veil of secrecy. On the other hand, it's still a government entity answerable to the people. And until now, there has always been room, has there not, for kind of routine reporting on non-classified matters that helped us have some window into the operations of the intelligence world. Can you tell me what that routine reporting till now entailed and how much of it will just disappear? You're absolutely right that the business of intelligence at its core is conducted in secret. On the other hand, every single intelligence agency generates public information and has a public profile. A lot of that information helps to inform public judgments about threats that we face and options that we have for meeting them. Reporters follow up on all kinds of leads, not only about the substance of national security policy, but the conduct of the agencies themselves. But what this new directive says is that the only news you should expect to receive in the future is authorized news. The dissenters, the internal critics, the whistleblowers, unless they receive permission in advance, are not supposed to talk to reporters. And if they do, it will be a security violation and a possible firing offense. So the whole ecosystem of national security reporting is going to be disrupted by this new directive. Why do you smile like you've been told a secret? Now you're telling lies, cause 
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, reject secret FBI backdoors in your communications. And I know what you're thinking, but no, this is not a recycled activism opportunity. The Electronic Frontier Foundation is sounding the alarm yet again about a new piece of legislation backed by the FBI that would increase monitoring of online activity. Just take a moment to recover from the surprise. EFF and the New York Times are reporting that the Obama administration is on the verge of backing a sweeping new Internet surveillance bill, an expansion of the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act. This bill would effectively force companies like Google and Facebook to install government-friendly backdoors so they can have direct access to a user's communications. Basically, it's an exacerbation of an already existing problem, i.e. going in the exact wrong direction on Internet privacy and security, which is something we don't have much of currently, despite the reassurances of folks like Google CEO Eric Schmidt. According to writer and security technologist Bruce Schneier, quote, the biggest Internet companies don't offer real security because the U.S. government won't permit it. The best we have are caveat-laden pseudo-assurances. At South by Southwest earlier this month, Schmidt tried to reassure the audience by saying that he was, quote, pretty sure that information within Google is now safe from any government's prying eyes, unquote. A more accurate statement might be, quote, your data is safe from governments, except for the ways we don't know about and the ways we cannot tell you about. And of course, we still have complete access to it all and can sell it at will to whomever we want. That's a lousy marketing pitch, but as long as the NSA is allowed to operate using secret court orders based on secret interpretations of secret law, it'll never be any different, unquote. And now the FBI wants in on that NSA action. The EFF makes the salient point that governments simply don't need this. Various agencies already have unprecedented access to our information. It also sends the wrong message to other countries where our diplomats chastise governments for limiting access and censoring the Internet. Schneier goes on to explain in a piece in The Atlantic that closing back doors and increasing security aren't just good for us individual citizen types. Quote, the implications of U.S. policy can be felt on a variety of levels. The NSA actions have resulted in widespread mistrust of the security of U.S. Internet products and services, greatly affecting American business. If we show that we're putting security ahead of surveillance, we can begin to restore that trust. And by making the decision process much more public than it is today, we can demonstrate both our trustworthiness and the value of open government, unquote. Go to the Take Action tab at EFF.org and send the opposition letter to the president. Let him know you're against the FBI-backed Kalia expansion. Expensive surveillance programs drain resources, create unnecessary diversions in law enforcement investigations, and make ordinary citizens into potential suspects. Certainly, our government can find real problems that need fixing. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down 
Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? I want to throw a hypothetical situation out to you that I think plays into what I want to talk about today. I want you to imagine that next week we have another terrorist attack on American soil. Now, nothing on the level of a 9-11, something greater, though, than the recent, not that long ago, Boston Marathon bombing. Maybe something more like the Oklahoma City bombing in the 1990s. 150, 200 Americans killed in the heartland, traumatic Horrible images on your television, you know, over the top news coverage, politicians making it into a, you know, political weapon to use against their opponents. Everything you would normally expect to see after a terrorist attack in this country. Then I want you to imagine during the post-mortem investigation that these things always have, as they try to figure out where the failure was. I mean, there's always this assumption that when there's a terrorist attack, there was some hole in our defenses that we can now close as a result of it being exposed by the recent attack. Imagine we find out that a couple of police officers had stopped the terrorist before the attack happened and that on the phone of the terrorist was information that would have tipped the officers off to his plot. If only they had searched the phone. But they didn't. And they didn't because they didn't have a search warrant. And because they didn't know that this guy was planning terrorism, they didn't know that that's what they'd be searching for. And the Fourth Amendment specifically says you kind of have to know what you're searching for. You can't search everything to find, you know, what bad things might be in the mix. You have to say, we think this guy might be involved in terrorism. Judge, we want to search his phone for any suggestions that there might be a terrorist plot afoot. Can we please have a warrant to search his phone to find out if there's any terrorist plot on his phone? But they didn't do that in our hypothetical. And they didn't because the Fourth Amendment protects that person the way it protects all of us. Do you think when that became exposed in the post-mortem investigation and all the media and all the politicians, you know, jump on board afterwards, do you think we're all going to say, good job, police officers, way to go protecting our Fourth Amendment rights, um, even though it cost all those lives? Or do you think we're going to have a bunch of people stand up and say, well, that points out right there that that Fourth Amendment's too broad and that we need to make some exceptions and some changes. And, and obviously this terrible, terrible tragedy points out, you know, the mechanisms that need to be changed. Now, I don't have to guess which way that's going to go. I've been watching this situation way too long. The Fourth Amendment doesn't win. In these sorts of cases, it just doesn't. It's the reason that it's a shell, an empty shell now, which, of course, makes it a little ironic that we're still fighting over removing the very few protections it still provides. It is nothing like how it's written now. And you have to understand why we don't get rid of amendments that form the core of the Bill of Rights. We just don't do that. Can you imagine an administration standing up and telling the American people that we need to get rid of the Fourth Amendment? Well, that would mess with the American brand, wouldn't it? The marketing of American values could not take the hit of getting rid of a fundamental, you know, element of the Bill of Rights, but you can eviscerate it through loopholes. And that's what's happened over time. Perhaps it's worth reminding, maybe just for the international listeners, right, what the text of the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says. 
It says, quote, The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. End quote. Now, I said there's not a lot of wiggle room in that amendment, but there's a little bit of wiggle room. Particularly one word provides all the wiggle room that's ever been needed. The word is unreasonable, as in the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Unreasonable is an eye of the beholder thing, isn't it? What I consider to be reasonable, you might consider to be unreasonable. But even worse than that, it's something that changes based on conditions, right? If you live in a particularly bad time, it's the Second World War, and tens of thousands of people are dying every few days, you know, and it's a crisis situation, well, maybe stuff that looked unreasonable a decade before all of a sudden looks reasonable, given the circumstances, right? We can all understand that given the circumstances little phrase, right? Because we live in the post-9-11 world. The problem with the way that legal precedence works, though, in this country is once something is changed, that becomes, well, not always permanent, but almost permanent because some things get overturned. I mean, we've got slavery precedents that nobody uses anymore, right? But most of the time, once you go out farther on the legal limb to deal with some particularly, you know, terrible event, the event goes away and we return to normalcy. But whatever you changed in the law stays as far out on the legal limb as it was able to get in the most unreasonable times. The slider only moves one way when it comes to the Fourth Amendment being chipped away. We return to normalcy after the Second World War. We return to normalcy after the Cold War. We return to normalcy someday when this drug war ends. We'll return to normalcy from this terrorism threat and the Fourth Amendment will stay as far out on the legal limb as it was able to go every time we needed another loophole put into it, because at the time, it was the reasonable thing to do and the reasonable way to interpret that amendment. If the amendment actually fluctuated with the times, it'd be okay, but it only gets worse, even though we keep getting better and worse. I think you get what I mean, in any case. You know, if you go back and you read the comments made by earlier Supreme Court justices in eras where we still had Supreme Court justices that really stood up for this stuff, it runs so counter to the basic public mood in the post-9-11 world that you can't even imagine these people sitting on the court today. Take Justice William O. Douglas as an example. This was a justice many decades ago, and he said, quote, it is better, so the Fourth Amendment teaches us, that the guilty sometimes go free than the citizens be subject to easy arrest. End quote. Can you imagine applying that to my hypothetical? The police officers let the terrorist go without searching his phone because that would be a violation of the terrorist Fourth Amendment rights? And that gets to another issue that's, that's fascinating and that people don't consider enough. We live in a free society, for the most part, still, kind of, sort of, and the free society doesn't just protect the good people, okay? It protects the bad people, too. And the people that want to have a less free society in order to get the bad people give themselves a less free society to live in as well. 
Now, we have a lot of um, programs out there, if you want to scan the Internet or scan websites or whatever, that will make this sound like some Orwellian cabal that's trying to take your rights away, some new world order, Darth Vader, corporatocracy. I mean, you know, you all are aware of these ideas that this is a sustained effort to strip Americans of their rights because we want to rule them like Stalin or something. But I think it's really much more understandable than that. I think everyone from the politicians to the district attorneys to the police officers to everyone else is responding to this public mood, right? We're afraid. And the problem is, is we have a system that doesn't work if we're afraid. I'll give you an example. Louis Free, who used to run the FBI during the Clinton administration, had a great line that I think exemplifies this problem very well. He said, quote, ask the American public if they want an FBI wiretap, and they'll say no. Ask them if they want a feature on their phone that helps the FBI find their missing child, and they'll say yes. End quote. That's kind of it in a nutshell. But the problem with that, folks, is that that leads to a situation where things like the Fourth Amendment are simply gone, and gone due to public sentiment, and gone because we've decided that security is more important than these freedoms that these things guarantee. Let me focus for a second, and we'll get to the reason I'm even talking about this down the road a little bit, but let me focus on the last line of the Star-Spangled Banner for a second, because I think it's important, and it's going to lead me to some important quotes from people that I admire that once upon a time played the role of bucking up our bravery in order to keep the system functioning. The last line of the Star-Spangled Banner says, Land of the free, home of the brave. And... To most Americans, we hear that so often that we don't even think about it. It's a branding or the marketing of American values, and it just rolls right off our back. But it's a phrase worth contemplating. And some of my journalistic heroes enunciated why before I was even born. You know, for example, I'm a big fan of Edward R. Murrow, the famous journalist from, you know, I mean, basically great journalists. I love a bunch of great journalists from about the 1940s to the 1980s. Uh, in the 50s was probably Murrow's heyday. And Murrow said, we are not descended from fearful men. And we use that line in the introduction to the Hardcore History Podcast. But Murrow had a bunch of contemporaries that were just as aware of the danger of not having enough bravery in a system that requires it and that it was built to function with, Right. One of these guys was named Elmer Davis, and unfortunately he's much forgotten today, but another great journalist from that same era. Davis is the guy who said, quote, This will remain the land of the free only so long as it's the home of the brave. End quote. He also famously said, This republic was not established by cowards, and cowards will not preserve it. End quote. Now, why were these guys saying these things in the 1950s when the majority of this stuff was uttered? Well, because Americans were living in another time where their fear and their desire for security seemed to overwhelm their commitment to the founding principles that we all learn in school and we all pledge allegiance to, liberty and justice for all, all those kind of things. This was during the Red Scare era, where everyone was freaking out that there was communist subversives everywhere that were going to turn our country into, you know, the Soviet Union and all of our freedoms would go away. 
So we were getting rid of our freedoms in order to prevent that from happening. And these guys were reminding us that if you get too afraid, the system won't work. Another Davis line that's famous, he said, quote, the first and great commandment is, don't let them scare you, end quote. And when he says them, he means all of the people that are pushing the fear, from the media to the politicians to the generally just fearful. And I think we Americans have this misunderstanding of our forebears that somehow they were all brave and we're all cowardly by comparison, when truthfully, we're all human beings and they were just as likely to get scared and, you know, jettison protections if that gave them a little more security as we are. But luckily, in times like the 1950s, where that was a very dangerous period, there were men and women of great courage who kept reminding us of the damage that could occur if we got too scared. Part of the danger of living in a free society is the protections that keep you free and that keep me free also protect the bad people. The problem is, is you can't just get rid of their protections and maintain yours. Now, in a police state, it'd be a lot easier to get those people. The Soviet Union, Nazi Germany, any place like that, be a lot easier to get the bad guys. The problem is, is that the inverse, you know, is also true that we've taken away the rights and freedoms in order to catch the bad guys, but you have to live without them as well. Hi, this is Vicki from the far left edge of the continent. I am calling because I've, um, a, a fellow keeps calling in and talking about um, desertification and animal agriculture as a point for climate change. I, I have some issues with his statement because it's not very um, nuanced, and I'd like to... Um, just give it a little bit, just fill it in a little bit. There, I have some points of agreement. First, we eat too much meat. Second, factory-scale farming is definitely bad for the animals and for the planet. Third, too much corn and soy are raised for animal production. And fourth, the planet is suffering from rapid desertification. There are other points that I want to keep this brief. So the nuance comes in here. When done correctly, raising animals on pasture is actually good for the earth. Pasture sequesters carbon and acts as a giant solar collector, while tilling for crops releases carbon to the atmosphere. Well-managed pasture can actually prevent or reverse desertification. And one thing that a lot of people don't know is that cows and sheep are actually grazers and are not biologically equipped to digest grains. So we shouldn't be feeding them corn and soy anyway. Pigs and poultry are great consumers of food trimmings and food waste like, um, you know, stuff that people throw away. 
But this only works on a small scale because on a large scale you get into transport and storage difficulties and you have to cook the stuff and it's really a lot of trouble, which is why it's not done. Right now we're wasting 40% of our food going into landfills. So I think that there are some answers here that we can uh, focus on and improve animal agriculture. There is a TED Talk playlist called Everything You Thought Was Wrong. One of the talks in that playlist describes why desertification is really happening and what can be done about it. I have actually seen uh, the process described up front and personal, and I know it works, and um, I hope people will go to the TED Talk and check it out. Thanks. Bye. Hey, Jay, this is Chrissy from Kansas. You don't have to play this on the air, but I just wanted to let you know uh, the way that you melded the explanation of the good guy and then the nice guy into your uh, explanation of that uh, M&M analogy uh, was probably the most brilliant thing I have heard in a very long time. So fucking kudos to you, man. Thanks. Hi, Jay. This is Nathan from Vancouver, Washington, calling about the drug war episode. And one of the points that I really want people to think more deeply about is it's one thing to debunk the arguments that, you know, everybody's going to die if they do marijuana, right? So you say, all right, nobody's ever died, blah, 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 right? And with various drugs, usually the statistics, the actual statistics on how many people truly overdose, how many people truly become you know, dysfunctional, you know, scratch themselves and offer to sell their bodies addicts is, is much lower than the propaganda. But the point is, how many, if, if it were true that some people had serious health consequences or death from abortion, how many would there have to be before we found ourselves justified to take the choice out of the hand of a woman and put it back in the hands of the state? How many people would have to die from abortion before it wasn't her body anymore? So how many people have to die from drugs or cigarettes, right? Other than informing me of the risk, how dangerous does it have to be before you truly have the right to take away my right to do what I want with my body? Or, the, or like I said, anybody else's right, somebody who wants to do crack, somebody who wants to do meth. So I think that's an important distinction is that there's a certain point where you don't let people poison each other. You don't let people deceive each other. But if I want to jump out of airplanes for recreation, that's my, you know, as long as I'm not landing on people, as long as I'm, you know, doing it responsibly so I don't land on, my landing zone is not hurting other people, it's nobody's business if I do something that's dangerous. If I own a firearm, it's my risk to my household and I'll be criminally prosecuted if I expose anybody else to that risk. Just like if I do drugs, I'll be criminally liable if I steal, if I assault someone or whatever. And so I think that the focus on the harmlessness of marijuana is a little bit dangerous in that if I endanger myself, it's none of anybody else's business. And I think that that argument you know, that, 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 that particular leg of the argument, I think, is, is weak and, and should be reexamined. Thanks, and I really appreciate the discussion. Bye.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, just to quickly respond to Nathan on the issue of marijuana legalization and the arguments behind it, I I think we're basically on the same page. You know, he even mentioned towards the beginning that it's worthwhile to counter uh, sort of the the myths about pot being dangerous but i also agree that pot being safe is not a foundational principle on which to uh, base your argument for legalization so you know we're on the same page but to clarify further you know i play those clips for multiple reasons i think it is good to debunk myths whenever possible But I also recognize that people just come at issues from different positions. So I think it's good to sort of explain an issue from all sorts of different directions in in the hopes that one of those directions will resonate with each person listening. So, you know, Nathan and I might come at it more from the civil libertarian perspective where even if theoretically pot were dangerous, that still wouldn't change my mind on it. But there are people out there, and lots of them, who just don't think that way, and that's that's not how their brain works, that's not their priorities, and they will think, well, if it's dangerous, then it should be banned, and I would like to convince that person to come to my side of the policy debate, regardless of whether they agree with me on their the logic of how they got there. So I think it's worthwhile making those sorts of arguments, even if it, you know it's not the basis of my argument, but it's the basis of someone's argument. And I might think they're wrong and their logic might be flawed, but that's okay because if we end up on the same side of the debate in the end, then it doesn't really matter how we got there. So, you know, I'll argue my basic principles all the time, but I'm happy to throw in some some other things that I know will appeal to people on a policy level because we all hopefully end up at the same place in the end. Uh, secondly, today, I wanted to give you an update on the fundraiser. Things are going well. Quick reminder, this fundraiser is to do nothing less than, you know, I have the hopes of building a smartphone mobile application that will, like, actually sort of disrupt the progressive media landscape. I want to actually change the way and lower the bar to entry for new people to find excellent progressive media. And so so that goes, you know, anyone listening to this show, it would could very well be used by uh, you know anyone already familiar with the landscape to help introduce them to, to new issues or to actually grow the audience entirely and find new people who would just never have gotten into this world in the first place except for the fact that maybe someone could hand them this one little app that is like a gateway to the world of progressive media that you already know and love that you know they would love if only they would get into it and this could be their their ticket. Um, so, so that fundraiser is going on. I said in the last episode that we needed a hundred people donating an average of a hundred dollars each to get us to our goal. Totally, totally doable. That number is down to eighty six people donating an average of a hundred dollars each. So, absolutely making progress. This is going to the end of the month, and I, I just want to put a little finer point on just one of the benefits that uh, that is available through uh, through this fundraiser which is that these hoodies are like I, I I've undersold them. I haven't uh, done them justice. 
They are made from recycled materials. They're, they're made by a company called Repair the World. So a bunch of hippies make them. Uh, they're, they're made out of garbage, basically, but they come out, you know, clean, obviously. Let me just <laughs> make that point. But they're clean and soft and really excellent. And then they're just actual construction is uh, actually Katie put it best. I, you know, Katie who works with the show, uh, I, I sent her one for free because I, I try to be a good person. And her response was, there's a zipper right where she has always wished that there would be a zipper pocket in every hoodie she's ever owned. And she's right, right in the sort of like the hand cubby place. There is a zipper pocket right above that perfect for putting, you know, a phone or anything else uh, of about that size. And then she followed up that comment by just saying, look, like, I don't want to exaggerate. So I'll just say that this is the best hoodie I've ever owned. And I will be honest, I don't know very much about Katie's wardrobe. I, I don't really know anything about it. But based on what I know about these hoodies, that statement doesn't surprise me. What would have surprised me is if she had said, I once had a hoodie that was as good as this one because I, I just, I've never seen a hoodie as good as this one. So I would have wondered uh, uh, about that statement. So if you're interested in not only helping uh, disrupt the progressive media landscape in a very positive way and getting an amazing uh, t-shirt or hoodie from a, a bunch of hippies trying to save the world through clothing, this fundraiser is for you. Check that out at the website, of course. And I uh, just want to thank a, a whole new set of people who have been donating. Um, I, I never get tired of doing this because I, I just am so grateful for how many people have been shipping in. So uh, today's thank you list is Toby from uh, Corsicana, Texas, Brett from Jeffersonville, Indiana, Brooke from Marion, Massachusetts, Gary from Manola, New York, Karen from Brooklyn, New York, Catherine from Bloomington, Illinois, Nicholas from Berkeley, California, Miko from Brooklyn, New York, Elaine and Rob from Indian Hills, Colorado, Linda from Corona, California, John from Gloucester, Massachusetts, Crystal from Morristown, New Jersey, William from Houston, Texas, Tom from Sunset Valley, Texas, Mary from Bloomington, Indiana, and Lisa from Spokane, Washington. So huge thanks to all of those people. Like I said, 86 more people donating an average of a hundred bucks. We're, we're within striking distance of making this happen. Uh, so please check that out. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, through this fundraiser uh, during this month. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of the left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame. How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're doing can't see Stories and forget who it is with